0: Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching.
1: Good morning, my friends, and welcome to Awaken. I hope that wherever you are, uh, you are well. Know that this last week, uh, our staff have been thinking about you and praying for you and hoping that today, we set the table for you to hear and maybe even see and experience the living God. We are trusting that God's spirit has the capacity and the ability to cross the boundaries of space that now exist between us. And so I wanna invite you to receive the next hour or so as a gift from us to you, from the divine to you. couple of things before we get started in earnest. I want to let you know about some things that are important for our life uh, as a community, and then we'll, we'll jump in. So first, uh, no learning lab. This may be obvious to many of you, but uh, we were intending to start a learning lab on April the 1st. Uh, that was not going to be an April Fool's joke. Uh, but we are—that is canceled—and this this class is really something that needs to be experienced in person. And so we're just gonna trust that someday in the future we'll be together again, and we'll try to reboot and reload that learning lab with with Christine Osgood, who was gonna teach it. Um, the annual meeting is coming up the third Sunday in May, May 17th, and we're just assuming that we're gonna have that meeting some way, shape and form. If we can gather, we will. If we can't, we'll try to figure out how to do it digitally. And if we can't do that, we'll postpone it. But related to that, if you're interested in participating in our life as uh, as a partner, which you need to do in order to vote on things like our budget and advisory team commitments and members, uh, there is a partnership class happening on April 19th and 26th. You can sign up for that online. And if we can't do it in person, we'll we're going to try to do that digitally over zoom or Google hangouts or something. So, uh, and then last but not least, we're trying a few new things, um, technologically to connect people over, uh, over the internets. And so if you didn't know, we have a little something called the awaken fireside page, which is really just kind of a private group, uh, where people from Awaken can hang out and talk and chat and share with each other. And so if you're not on that or you're not familiar with that, um, I would just highly recommend that you search for that on Facebook. And then our moderator will welcome you with open arms to the Awaken Fireside room so that you can participate in that uh, community. And then also we're trying something new. We're were, were trying to, we're figuring out like, Hey, how, how can we as a staff gather people on the internet and, Um, Somebody's like, well, we should host a happy hour. And I thought, oh, that's a great idea, except that I'm not drinking. But no problem. I can drink something else. So I'm hosting happy hour, friends, on Monday, tomorrow, 4 p.m. to 5 p.m. I will be on Zoom. The link for that is on the social medias. It's on the website. It's also in the Awaken resource that you should have gotten if you're signed up for that, uh, what used to be the Awaken weekly distribution list. So that link is there. You can just click on it and then I'll be there. I'll be drinking probably a mocktail that I made and you can drink whatever you'd like and we'll just hang out. And if anybody shows up, we'll, we'll just have happy hour. And if nobody does, we won't do it again. So there you go. Uh, today, we're gonna start with a couple of different things. I wanna let you know, we're gonna have communion again. Somebody said after last week, hey, we should do communion every week. And I was like, that's a great idea. So we're gonna do communion again at the end. We're gonna gather around the table and celebrate the Lord's, the Lord's Supper. So be ready for that. If you're not, pause this and go get the elements. Uh, We're also gonna have the the kid's blessing. What normally is sung over the kids. Kids out there, we want you to know that we still love you. We're thinking about you and we're gonna sing the kid's blessing. But also, uh, it's a blessing for everybody, friends. Um, It's inclusive in that way. So whoever you are, wherever you are, if you're alone or you're with family or you're a child, like this is our prayer for you. May God give you eyes to see and ears to hear. So that's gonna happen um, right after my good friend, John Sunday. John wrote a song about... uh, Well, I'll let you discern what it's about. Um, He reached out to us this last week and said he's got this song that feels appropriate for the topic this week and also just the life that we're all living right now. And so here's a few words from John and his description uh, about what the song is and what it was intended for. And then John will sing that and we'll do the kid's blessing, which is also your blessing. And then we'll jump in. Here we go.
2: Hi, this is John Sundy. Yeah, I wrote this tune last week after being introduced to this phrase coined by a fellow named uh, Rudolf Otto in his book, The Idea of the Holy, um, where he explores uh, the non-rational side, the kind of mystical side of spiritual experience. Um, And the phrase is called, is creature feeling. Um, It's for him referring to that um, part of spiritual experience where we're odd um, by the enormity of God, by the the bigness of God, and in that awe, um, understand our relative smallness and our humbled, you know, in the face of that. Um, and the idea that that's part of um, the reality of spiritual experience. And uh, I thought it's interesting because so many spiritual traditions um, considered this to be, you know, the seed of wisdom. In the Bible, it says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, and though I wish we could all grow in wisdom, I wouldn't wish the circumstances on folks that tend to lead us to that wisdom, you know, circumstances that generally force us to confront how little we're in control. Um, there's beauty in the recognition of that and wisdom if we work out the implications of it, um, but it, it tends to be a pretty hard one, an uncomfortable process and um, and, and complicated. <laughs> so anyway, this song um, tries to kind of, at least a little bit, get at that that idea. Thank you.
1: So welcome to the fifth Sunday in Lent, friends. Only one more Sunday to go before this Lent thing is over. It's currently Thursday. I'm recording this, and there are 14 days, not counting today, until Good Friday, which is when I intend to break my fast. So again, not that I'm counting, but I hope that you are learning and growing in Lent. And I found a couple things this week that I think might be appropriate for us. Uh, Thomas Akempis wrote in a book called The Imitation of Christ. He's speaking to, to monks and young monks who were getting restless in their cells, which usually only had a bed and a basin, a wash basin, a cot where they slept, a chair, a writing desk. So very minimalistic, uh, a kneeler. Uh, but these young monks would come to him and, and, and others, uh, wiser monks and being restless. And he would, the advice he would give to them would be, go to your cell and your cell will teach you everything you need to know. Um, now, I just think this is such a fascinating quote, and uh, especially in the time that we're living in right now. Now for them, the cell was, that's referred to here is a bit of an image, it's a metaphor, uh, a place inside of life rather than someone's like cell necessarily. So they would say, go to your cell, your cell will teach you everything you need to know, which meant stay inside your vocation, uh, inside of your commitments, inside your legitimate conscriptive duties, inside of your church, inside of your family, they will teach you where life is found and what love means. Essentially be faithful to your commitments and what you are ultimately looking for will be found there. So to those of you who are in quarantine, go to your cell and your cell will teach you everything you need to know. Uh, Julian of Norwich, 13th century during what is known as the Black Plague, which took the lives of many, uh, is most famously known for this quote, and I'll offer it and then begin, All shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. We are in week five of our series Metamorphosis, and sometimes in the life of Awaken, as I look back, A series sort of sneaks up on us uh, and God does sort of way more than we as planners ever imagined would have happened. And to be perfectly honest with you, we really struggled to bring this one to life as a worship team. We felt like we kept, we were like banging our heads against the wall. And there were a number of times where we sort of almost put this thing in the can and didn't do this series. We almost ditched it. But Fitting for today's message and the, the 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 stage that we're in, we really pressed into it and we kept struggling with it. and something beautiful is being born out of wake. And I don't know about you, but I'll speak personally. this series is like somebody's hit a tuning fork, and it is just and then put that tuning fork to my soul. And it is ringing like all the way down to the bottoms of my feet. And uh, I've heard that from a number of you. So, Uh, I hope that's true. And and quite frankly, some of you have said that to me. So I'm gonna invite you as the church uh, to share that with each other. Um, stories is really all we have right now in, in the midst of this thing that we're in, and so I'm, I guess my invitation as we begin this morning is: Would you consider like sharing your stories of metamorphosis or sharing parts of this series that maybe have been meaningful to you in one of three different places? We have an Instagram feed uh, at Awaken West Seventh, and you can post, post a little picture and write a little story about how this is connecting with you. Um, on Facebook in two different places. We have the Awaken West 7th page, which is a bit more public, anybody can post on that. And then of course the Awaken Fireside group, which I mentioned before, if you want it to be a little more private. But would you consider just sharing um, with each other the ways in which this series has connected with you and as a encouragement to one another, even as we're far away from each other, we can still be speaking into each other's lives. So. Today we turn our attention to the space called e-closure, this transitional moment between chrysalis and the adult mature being in the world. According to the dictionary, e-closure is the emergence of an insect from the pupa case or of a larva from the egg. So. Synonyms for this would be emergence, uh, arrival, uh, appearance, even apocalypse, like the unveiling of something. And today I'm gonna flip the script a little bit if you've been following along in this series. Uh, if you're just joining us, usually I talk about the, the butterfly. We're doing these two simultaneous journeys of the butter the caterpillar to the butterfly and then the Israelites and Moses on the Exodus. And I'm gonna flip that script a little. Uh, instead of talking about the butterfly first and then Moses, we're gonna talk about scripture first and then come back to the butterfly. So we're gonna be in Numbers chapter 13 and Numbers chapter 20. So if you have your Bibles, turn there. And we're gonna read a bit of this story because we've got nothing but time, baby. So saddle up. I'm refraining from singing Stephen Curtis Chapman right now. Um, (laughs) Numbers chapter 13, starting in verse one and you're welcome. The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites from each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites, skipping to verse 25. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land which you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. And then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go and take the possession of the land for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, no, we cannot attack these people. They are stronger than we are. We seemed like grasshoppers in in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. Chapter 14, that night, all the members of the community raised their voices and they wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in, in, in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us if we go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the Israelite assembly gathered there and Joshua, son of Nun and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the Israelites, the land we possessed through and or the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. And if the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey and will give it to us. So 10 spies say no, two spies say yes. Here we are in the wilderness. Uh, The Israelites have crossed the sea. They have been given water and bread and meat and Sabbath in last week's sermon. They are standing at Kadesh. They are on the precipice of entering the promised land as God's people. 12 spies go in, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel to scout it out and report back. And after all they've seen, after all they've witnessed in the Exodus story, two spies, Joshua and Caleb, come back and they say, yes, if the Lord is for us, who can be against us? And 10 come back and say, there's no, there's not a snowball's chance in hell if we're going to overtake the people in that land. No way. The question before them is twofold. Who is God and who are we as the people of God? And what happens next is chaos. The 10 are saying, no way, we're gonna die in there if we try to inhabit the land. The two are saying, like, you all are deaf, numb, and blind. Like, were you even awake the past few months as in our life together? Like, we are God's people, and Yahweh is the one true God, so let's go be those people. But clearly, they are not ready. They're not ready for this moment. And so into the chrysalis they go, the journey into the wilderness. And does anybody catch the number of days that they explored the land? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, 40, of course. If I'm asking a question, the answer is either Jesus or 40. So uh, one year for every day they explored the land, they will wander in the wilderness. And if you didn't know, 40 in the Bible is often a reference, this sort of literary uh, uh, flag being waved about in 40, something is, being, something is dying and something is being born. Uh, a, a child is in the womb for 40 weeks, And so there is this idea, this sense in which when 40 arrives, you can kind of wonder like, okay, what's dying and what's being born? So they explore the land for 40 days. And then one year for every day they explore the land, they will wander the wilderness. And all the members of the community who are 20 years and older, save Joshua and Caleb, will not make the transition from the chrysalis of the wilderness into adulthood as the people of God in the land. This is, this is a tragic and terrible moment, if we're being honest, in the life of Israel as the people of God, but here it is. And this is true, and this is real. And I would say this is true in, in, in the process of spiritual formation. Like you don't get to skip parts of the process. They're standing there and they are not ready to go into the land. Something needs to be shaped and formed in them and they can't just skip ahead. And so into the wilderness, they go. Now, does anybody remember in the first week of this series, I started with a quote uh, from a woman named Renita Weems, an African-American pastor. And she writes, we are always repeating ourselves, returning to old themes, re-examining the same issue from a different angle, from the vantage point of a different season. Here it is. We don't move on as much as we return wiser. So in Numbers thirteen, they're standing on the edge of the wilderness, or on the edge of the promised land. They're not ready. They go into the wilderness for forty years, and they come back. and In Numbers chapter twenty, any guesses as to where they are standing forty years later? Kadesh, the same exact place, minus a generation of of Israelites who didn't make it through the transition of the chrysalis and the wilderness. And what do we find as the people of God emerge from the wilderness? and are about to go into the promised land to become the people of God. What we find is struggle. What we find is pain. What we find is suffering. And this is what I'm gonna keep coming back to today. For something new to be born or for something new to emerge, struggle and suffering is always a part of the process. It's always a part of the process. So let's pick up the story in Numbers 20. A couple pages later, Starting in verse 1 of chapter 20, we read this. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and there they stayed at, you guessed it, Kadesh. There, Miriam died and was buried. Now, there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses. If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness? That we would have our livestock and die, that we and our livestock should die here. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs or grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. We've been here before. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord said to Moses, Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to the rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so that they and their livestock can drink. And so Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together and in front of the rock. And Moses said to them, listen, you rebels. <laughs> must we bring you water from out of this rock? And Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff, water gushed out in the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I will give them. Now in the next few verses, They're opposed by the Edomites and the king of Arad as they're making their way from Kadesh into the promised land and Aaron dies at Mount Hor. And as they set out from Mount Hor in chapter 21, verse four, we read this. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? Like we haven't heard that one before. There is no bread, there's no water. We detest this miserable food. And the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, we sinned and we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. But the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. And so Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. And then anyone who was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake lived a bit of a bizarre passage, but be that as it may, what are the struggles that we see the Israelites facing as they are standing on the precipice of the the, the previous season behind them ending the wilderness and about to enter the promised land as the people of God struggle. The first struggle, and we've seen it before, is the crisis of water again. And it's not that the Israelites, again, as Renita Weems says, it's not that the Israelites move on from where they were, it's that they return, but in this case, not much wiser. And it's the same for Moses as well. Here they are again, about to enter the land, just like they were at the beginning of the Exodus story, but now 40 years later, and they're complaining about the same things. Not sure where they're gonna get water in the desert, wishing they had been left in Egypt. And let's give them the benefit of the doubt, right? Like maybe this generation was too young to remember this moment so many years ago when God provided water from Mount Horeb. But the struggle is real friends. And there are a number of interesting layers to this passage. Notice what Moses does first. He does what he did before. God tells him specifically to speak to the rock, order the rock and water will flow. But that's not what he does. He strikes the rock, which is what God told him to do 40 years before. And isn't this how it is in the spiritual life? Isn't this what we do? where we have this one moment of connection, this one spiritual ecstasy with God, where we hear God clearly or we we experience God's presence in a very real way. And then what do we do but try to recreate that moment over and over and over again? Play the same song, go to the same location, gather the same people around. Like if you put money in a vending machine and hit C4, you should get a Snickers every time. But that's not how it works. There's this one summer that I I fished on the Mississippi River a lot. And the water was high that year in the spring and into the summer. And there was this one wing dam that became just an absolute uh, honey hole for giant walleyes. I have more pictures of 25 inch plus walleyes than any guy should ever deserve to have. I showed him to my wife and she was like, is that the same fish? I'm like, no, it's a different one. Look, I'm wearing different shirts in every picture. She's like, yeah, but your face is exactly the same. Like, you gotta fix that. I was like, I don't know what to tell you about that, but it's not the same fish. I caught so many big fish off this one wing dam and it only happened for one summer. And then years Like every time I went out on the water for almost three years, I tried to catch a fish on that spot and I never caught another walleye after that one summer. But I sure tried over and over and over again. Why? Because that's how it happened the last time. So that's how it should happen again. Isn't this what we do with God? Isn't this how we sometimes approach the spiritual life? And I don't blame Moses for striking the rock at all. But the Lord is not a noun. God is a verb and God is moving. You can't step in the same river twice. And here's another interesting thing about this passage. As much as Moses struggles here, there's a, bit of, there's a bright spot for the Israelites. In verse four of chapter 20, this is the first time in the whole Exodus story that the people have spoken and referred to themselves as singular, the Lord's community. Like while this whole generation, they're still complaining, they're still wondering where they're going to get water from, but they have made a transition from being singular individuals into one community of the Lord's, which is fascinating. But the struggle for water, where are we going to get it? How's it going to come? Are we going to live? Are we going to die? Is still present as they emerge from the wilderness and attempt to enter the land. The second struggle is one of personnel. In chapter 20, we learn that Aaron, Aaron is gonna die. Moses won't enter the promised land and you're gonna have a new leader whose name will be Joshua. This is all told to them as Moses and Aaron strike the rock instead of speak to the rock. And I don't know why that's their punishment. Lots of debate as to, that seems a little bit strong, like the the crime doesn't fit the punishment. Be that as it may, God says, Aaron will die. Moses, you will not enter the promised land. And because of that, there will be a new leader. Like, I don't know if you've ever been a part of something that had been in existence for a significant period of time that was like started and led by the same person or people. And when that happens, like all of the memories that are created and shared as a community, they go all the way down deep into the DNA and the fiber of that thing, that community. And when that person leaves or dies or is asked to leave or steps away or no longer leads that thing, friends, that's a devastating moment in reality and a difficult transition for a community to make. Even outside of the church, this this is true, but inside of the church, when a founding pastor leaves, it's usually, according to stats, it's one to two years for the next person who takes over before they leave and the community is actually ready to follow a new leader because they're so traumatized by what has happened. I mean, imagine if you're the Israelites, like Moses and Aaron have led this thing from the very beginning. Like you've sat around so many campfires in Egypt and now in the wilderness for 40 years, you've heard the same old man tell the same old story about a burning bush in the desert. Like you've heard stories of them going to Pharaoh and telling him, let my people go. You you may even remember the moment when he spoke and told the waters to part. Like I, I had a youth pastor growing up and he would tell this one story about the rag man, like incessantly. We'd be at a youth rally or something, and he'd be talking, 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 and then I'd lean over to my brother, Jake, and I'd elbow him and like, here comes the story about the rags. And sure enough, he'd tell, rags, rags, new rags for old. Like I've heard this story so many times. Like you, you maybe even imagine Moses and Aaron, like standing next or Aaron standing next to Moses, holding his arms up. And so like now in this moment, as you're emerging from the chrysalis and struggling to become the people of God, you learn that Aaron is dead. And not only that, but Moses isn't going to enter the land with you. And you're, you're going to have to learn what it means to follow the voice of a new person and a new leader. And his name is Joshua. So there's water, there's the crisis of water, this struggle. Then there's Aaron, he dies. Moses doesn't enter the land. Joshua is your new leader. And if that's not enough, you're bitten by snakes that are sent by God, but then healed when you look at an image of the snake that bit you. Now, now there's a lot of weird stories in the Bible. We've covered a few of them, but this one is up there. Like, okay, God sends, God's mad. He's just hacked. He can't handle it anymore. So God's like if God's a he or she, God is like, you know know what we're gonna do? We're gonna send some snakes to bite the people and some of them are gonna die. That's not even that funny, but I'm just imagining how this is all going in God's mind. So sure enough, the snakes come, they bite the people, some of them die, and now they're praying. They're like, oh my gosh, Moses, what are we gonna do? Moses prays to the Lord and the Lord's like, tell you what, make a snake, put it up on a pole and tell the people to look at it. It's like so bizarre. For those of you that have been in our building at Awaken, I often think of Christopher Columbus as the snake. Like the stained glass window with Chris in it. Like you gotta look at the thing, you know, to be healed from the thing, which, okay. I'm not gonna unpack like the difficulty of Moses's punishment for striking the rock instead of speaking uh, speaking to the rock. That's bizarre. I don't get that. I'm not gonna unpack that. And I'm not gonna unpack the existential and psychological implications of your healing coming from gazing at the thing that inflicted pain, which was sent by God. Uh, Those are probably both worthy of lost in translation, which maybe we'll come back to this summer. I don't know. But here's the thing, what I want us to focus on is like the struggle that is present as the Israelites emerge from the wilderness and attempt to take possession of the land as God's people. For something new to be born, something new, or for something new to emerge, struggle and suffering is always a part of the process. You got water, you got Moses and Aaron not entering the land, Joshua as a new leader, and then this bizarre incident of the snakes. Well, what about the butterfly? The chrysalis lasts about 10 to 15 days under normal circumstances. And so when all these imaginal disks we've talked about of these cells come together, they're like homing devices. All these cells come to them and they create what will be the butterfly. The chrysalis turns translucent. If you've ever seen this, it is bizarre. It's so cool. And you can begin to see like the black and orange in the wings on the butterfly. And then things start to actually, like you can see it moving inside the chrysalis again totally weird. But as the butterfly begins to wrestle its way out of the cocoon, a small opening begins to emerge in the casing of the chrysalis, and then a desperate struggle ensues for the butterfly. It looks awful. After making its way out of the casing, two things happen. One, it uses the shell, the casing itself, to hang itself upside down to enable the wings to dry and unfurl. And then secondly, the abdomen of the butterfly is just filled with liquid. And that liquid is called hemolyph. And that is pumped out of the the abdomen into the wings somehow. And those wings begin to unfurl and dry. And the abdomen of the butterfly begins to shrink down back to size as if like the, the, the struggle and the action of pumping that hemolyph out to the wings like strengthens the muscle of the abdomen and it tightens up and it becomes what it will be. And this is all very difficult to watch. It appears as if the butterfly is struggling for its life because guess what? It is. The struggle is necessary for the adult butterfly to fully emerge from the cocoon. We've all heard this story. It's anecdotal, but it's so beautiful, right? The little boy who sees the cocoon and the emerging butterfly and the struggle that's happening in an attempt, oh my gosh, we gotta help the little butterfly, right? He like grabs the tiniest pair of scissors and cuts the cocoon ever so gently, and helps the butterfly out of the cocoon and then sets it on the ground and waits for it to fly. Eyes wonder and big and without knowing it, the little boy has like stolen the possibility of life for this butterfly. Like circumventing the struggle, that is necessary for it to emerge and become what it's meant to be. And the poor butterfly is left to drag its now overweight body along the ground for the entirety of its life. The same thing happens with bees, by the way. Uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but NASA, these crazy scientists, they've taken all kinds of things to space to see what would happen to them. Which, I don't know, that'd be kind of a cool job. Hey, what do we want to bring to space this time? Let's check it out. So one time they brought honeybees. They're like, what happens to honeybees if you bring them into space? So they bring these honeybees into space. And according to one story, they're, they're weightless, right? They're like floating around. And there's no gravity. And so the bees are kind of like, whoa, what's going on? Well, they learn, they adapt up there. They adapt so much so that they can, like, by the end of it, they're still working in their little hives and building things. But what was interesting was when they brought them back. When they brought them back, these, these bees, they, they couldn't fly anymore. They're, and evidently their inability to fly was directly attributed to the fact that in space, the bees no longer used their wings and because they could float around in, in zero gravity. And this, this lack of using their wings produced atrophy in the muscles that helped them flap their wings. So gravity, the normal force that is like exerted against a bee, enables it to fly. And when that's removed, the very muscles that propel the bees through the air atrophy and they could no longer achieve liftoff. So the once majestic and beautiful honeybee, this insect of nobility, was like they were bound to the ground like any other random, let's, I don't know, centipede. They needed the struggle of fighting through gravity to strengthen the muscles that enable them to fly. The same is true for humans, friends. When a human is born naturally via the birth canal, this narrow passageway actually is necessary and produces exactly what is needed for the newborn baby to breathe its first breath. This is fascinating, by the way, in utero, the baby's lungs are filled with fluid and the oxygen it needs for survival comes from the mother via the umbilical cord, right? This is basic biology. But in one of the most miraculous moments in the natural world, about a million little miracles happen at the same time, the baby stops receiving oxygen from mom, a, a, a valve in its heart flips and it begins to breathe with its lungs, its first breath. It's incredible. It's incredible. The process of passing through the narrow birth canal expels the liquid in the lungs and readies it for this new emergence to happen and this life to begin in this new world. Richard Rohr talks about in his second half of life book called Falling Upward. He argues that second half of life wisdom only comes from a life lived over time. And in the rare occasion, that a young person possesses this type of wisdom, he says, invariably they have suffered and struggled greatly for it comes no other way. Jesus at the end of his life is in a garden, struggling to the point of how this works, I don't know, sweating drops of blood struggling with the road that he must travel and the suffering that must be endured so that something new might be born in and for humanity. Paul in Philippians chapter three says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of, res- of his resurrection and to participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death so that somehow I might attain the resurrection from the dead. For something new to be born or for something new to emerge, struggle and suffering is always part of the process. You cannot collect $200 if you don't pass go. Friends, if the goal of the Christian life is that the life of Christ would be formed and shaped in me with increasing measure, why am I surprised that suffering and struggle is a part of that process? So maybe you find yourself here today emerging from the chrysalis, new life trying to be born, I would just encourage you, I would remind you that the struggle is necessary for new life to emerge. And so my question for you this morning as we close is this, what might emerge in me and in the world if I stay in the struggle? What might emerge in me and in the world if I don't run from the struggle? What might emerge in me and in the world if I don't numb the struggle? How many different ways do we anesthetize things that we don't wanna feel? What might be born in me? What might be born in the world if I stay in the struggle, if I'm present to it, if I can name it, and allow it to transform me. Pray with me if you would. God, this morning as we gather together and we hear these words written so long ago, my hope and my prayer is that they would become life-giving to us today. God, for those that find themselves in the midst of this struggle between the chrysalis of waiting and trusting uh, that that you are doing something in this period and and like emerging as an adult or a mature being, a more mature, this this transition period. God, I pray that we wouldn't run from, we wouldn't uh, deny or anesthetize the struggle that we might feel in the midst of this. And I pray that we would learn and that we would know that the struggle the wrestling is necessary for something new to be born in me and in the world. So for my friends in the next few moments, would you by your spirit be present to them wherever they are, walking through the park or sitting in a car or together with family or alone in a room? God, would you be with them right now in these moments of silence? as we make our way to a close together, um, Melody has recorded a song that she's written called What If that is appropriate for today. And so Mel is going to share a little bit about what the song means to her and why um, it felt appropriate for this morning. And then she'll play that. And then we will gather around the Lord's table together.
3: So I wrote this song a few years ago and uh, it was during a season of my life or actually was really surprised to come to the realization that I didn't have to fix myself up or clean myself up before I attempted to connect with God. Um, at the time, I was definitely in the midst of a lot of struggle and pain, uh, particularly dark season. And without going into too much detail about it uh, to sort of save myself the inevitable vulnerability hangover later, um, I'll just say that I was definitely asking God the question, why am I even alive? And why did you make me? And even though that wasn't the first time I'd asked that question, it was the first time I'd actually approached God with it. And I was already in my 30s at this point Um, I think I had never asked God that question directly before because I didn't think that he or she wanted to hear it, Um, that God didn't really care about the dark parts of my life. God was only interested in connecting with the parts that I'd already worked out to try to perfect. And that somehow I had to prove that I could rise above the struggle on my own. Uh, So this song is basically me dreaming and asking the question, What if it isn't too good to be true that God is good? Um, What if Psalm 126 is actually true when it says, those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy? So this is really a song of hope, uh, resting in the realization that I will be transformed, I will be healed, and that I don't have to pretend or try to prove myself at any moment along the way.
1: So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Whenever you eat of it, do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took a cup and he blessed it. and He said, this is my blood shed for you. Whenever you drink of it, do it in remembrance of me. Friends, this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love God and those who want to love God more. So come you who have much faith, or you who have little, you who have been here often, and you who have not been here for a long time or ever before, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. So come, not because the church invites you, but because Christ invites you to be known and to be fed here at the table. So would you take a piece of bread and hear the words, the body of Christ broken for you. in the same way would you take the cup and hear the words the blood of Christ shed for you now drink as we close today receive this blessing know that the Lord blesses you and keeps you The Lord's lifting up his face to shine upon you and being gracious unto you. The Lord's lifting up his countenance to you and giving you peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and all God's people said together, Amen. Grace and peace, my friends. Be good to each other. Be good to yourself. Love one another and love the world. See you next week.
0: facebook.com backslash community